0: Thank you, choir. Thank you, John. And uh, just to be clear, we are uh, modifying our service schedule March the 10th. Okay, I was informed when I got back to my chair that uh, we had two different months mentioned. So it's March the 10th. Everybody say that with me really loud. March 10th. Very good. Very good. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page here. So. This morning, we're going to be talking about the question in his image or in ours. You know, we live in a culture where people um, want to make their own life. They want to become their own brand. They want to be the captain of their own ship. They want to be in charge of their own life. But this morning, we're going to learn a very important truth, that that mindset doesn't square with how the Bible tells us our purpose is on this earth. And so as we dig into the latter part of Genesis chapter 1, and I invite you to turn there and keep it open as we move over from chapter 1 into chapter 2 this morning, I want to just share with you that Um, This particular passage is very powerful, so I'm glad that you are here in his image or in ours. Now, just this week, just like I said last week, we uh, are taking your questions, and we've received numerous questions from you uh, relative to the series thus far. I'm going to answer three of them this morning in the context of what we discuss. Uh, But you can text uh, your questions anonymously to that number on the screen, Or to the email up there on the screen as well. And just to kind of level set us, last week we walked through Genesis 1, 1 through 25, and we found out that Genesis means beginnings and that Moses, yes, is the author of Genesis. We also identified the fact that God exists and that he is eternal, that he is eternal everlasting to everlasting. While we have a beginning, God never had a beginning. He is an uncaused cause. Thirdly, we found out that the universe, in fact, did have a beginning, something scientists denied until the early 1920s at the invention of the Hubble telescope. And I talked about how Einstein came to that conclusion himself when he said it is a necessary necessary fact that the universe had a beginning. Of course, the scripture has always proclaimed that. Fourthly, God created the world and the heavens in six days, and then he rested, he formed, and then he filled, he produced, and then he populated. We saw how days one through three line up with days Four through 6. And then we learn that the word yom, which is the Hebrew word for day, literally always, when it's connected with a number, as it is in Genesis 1, always refers to a 24-hour period of time. And of course, when Moses says, and evening and morning were the first day, he is adding emphasis to that fact. And that God created everything in maturity. This is going to play heavily into our interpretation of chapter 2 in the first several verses. And that God created everything in maturity and therefore we may get this sense that everything is old. But really God can produce and process much faster because he is not beholden to the natural laws that he has given us. And then finally, we see that the three persons of the Trinity are involved. God speaks, the Spirit hovers, and the Son is the creator, as Jim just read for us this morning. He is the image of God. He is the supreme ruler of the universe. And in John chapter 1, which we read last week, we learn that Jesus is the one who created all. He's the agency through which God enabled the creation. And so I want to attach, while we're still in Genesis 1, I want to go ahead and answer two other questions. The first question was, could that shapeless mass in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, be millions of years old? It says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, And the earth was formless and void. And so the question was a plausible question. Could it be millions of years? I would say the Bible is silent on how long that formless mass was there. So I would not take too much out of the scripture, nor would I read anything into the scripture. This is a a wonderful hermeneutical way to interpret the word of God. Don't read into the scripture what you hear from mankind. God didn't give us the details on how long that mass had been there because it's immaterial. Well, it is material, but it's immaterial to our knowledge. Does that make sense? However, I would also say that scientists have claimed that fossils in the fossil record are millions of years old. And of course, we know that can't be true because death did not come until... The fall, which happens in Genesis 3. And so I would argue that, yes, you may be able to read the millions of years in, but ask yourself the question, where are you getting the concept of millions of years to begin with? The idea is that you've gotten it from science classes that you have taken. This is not from the Word of God. Moses could have said millions of years. He chose not to. Uh, the second question that came up uh, uh, that is germane to this is, when were the angels created? And did Satan and the angels have free will? And how did Satan get one-third of them to fall with him? And so I, I would argue this, that we don't know again exactly, specifically, when the angels were created. It doesn't specifically say, because this is a record for us as humanity to understand God's creative power and his divine purposes. However, we are given some insights into two passages that you may not know about. The first is in Isaiah chapter 14 and the second is in Ezekiel 28 where we learn not only about the king of Babylon in Isaiah, but then there's a shift in the description of the person being prophesied against and it is a clear depiction of Satan. You'll go home and read that and you'll find it fascinating. The same is true in Ezekiel 28. He starts talking about the king of Tyre. But then he transitions to this angel, this guardian cherub, who is beautiful and adorned with all of these precious stones and who was in the Garden of Eden. It is a clear reference to Satan himself. And so we know that Satan, of course, is a created being from those passages. And we also know that he was created prior to Genesis 1.31, because God created everything, and we learn at the end of Genesis uh, Genesis 1 and into Genesis 2 that God created everything. So he was created before then. Now, when did he fall? We don't know specifically when pride was found in his heart, and he chose against God to rebel against God, and then to convince A third of the angels, we get that reference from Revelation 12, that a third of the angels fell with the devil. But the point is, is that he fell sometime between Genesis 1.31, where God said everything that he made was very good. And we'll read that this morning. And Genesis 3.1. So sometime in Genesis 2, Satan chooses to rebel against God from a time, chronological time period. And we'll talk about that as we go, and I'll even uh, postulate this morning why he fell. And so therefore, we want to read now, uh, pick up our reading in the study of Genesis, verse 26 of chapter 1. Let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. Genesis 1, 26 and following. Then God said... And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Father, this is your word. We thank you for it. We ask, Lord, that you will guide our hearts and our minds and illumine our understanding to your truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, as I... Uh, As I launch into this passage, we're now on the second day or the second half of day six. And we see that we are created in God's image, in his image. Uh, In the NIV version, it says, then God said. In other versions, it may say, and God said. But the emphasis here I want to make is that this is a special creation of God. This is a distinct creation. We are the pinnacle. Humanity is the pinnacle of all that God had created. The crowning glory of His creative power. Now that doesn't make us gods, okay, but it does make us as those in His image and in His likeness. Notice what it says there. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. So fascinating, but this is a reference to the Trinity, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One in essence, three in person. And this is God speaking, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So that, and the so that is very important, The so that is there so that we may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the land animals themselves. God gave us representative power, dominion, to subdue the earth and to fill it. And so we are made in his image. Now, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? In the Latin, it's called the imago dei. And the fact is, is that every single human being who has ever lived, was created in the image of God. That means that they are of infinite value. They are distinct. They are personal. They have a blueprint, we, we call DNA, that actually makes you utterly unique. There has never been another you. And God's creative power doesn't run out He doesn't run out of creativity. Every single one of us is unique. And yet we are distinct from the animals because we carry the image of Almighty God. Now, evolutionary theory would suggest that we we came from the apes. But that's not true because the apes were not created in the image of God. Humans were created in the image of God. That is why you and I, we go to the zoo and we look at animals behind the cage. And then we go home. You know, if we evolved from apes, then why do apes still exist? No, evolution has failed on every level. In fact, most scientists worth their salt today would say that the evolutionary theory is debunked. And so we have this image that we have, and here's the beauty of it. We have a likeness as well. Our likeness is that we have the attributes of God. Now there are some attributes of God that we do not share with Him. First of all, He is eternal, past, present, and future. We are not. We have a beginning. Secondly, He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. We are not all-powerful. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. We are not all-knowing. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. We are not everywhere. We're confined by space and time. But those are uncommunicable attributes. How about those attributes that are communicable? For example, God is a creative. He has a creative mind. We can create. You see, when you walk down into into um, an artifact bed, you find maybe a hieroglyph and you look at it and you say a mind is behind this hieroglyph. If you see a computer program that is written to do certain functions, it's like the computer has a mind behind it. You see a watch and how it's designed and all of the different parts and how it moves together. You know that there is a mind behind it. Well, friends, The human genome study actually proved that the complexity of the DNA molecule in every single human being is so utterly profound and unfathomable to the human mind to understand that it's clear there is an intelligent designer who has imprinted his mark, his image on us. For us to represent Him. But He is also, He has also given us His likeness that we can be creative, that we can reason, that we can problem solve, that we can love and show mercy and grace and be just and righteous. All of these attributes of God are communicable to you and I. In C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, he would say, all of humankind is, is part of this natural law. We have this natural law, this moral code that has been written on our conscience. And that moral code is there to help us understand what is right and what is wrong. Now, in today's society, we are really distorting those lines. But there is right and wrong, and it's written on our hearts, In fact, in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, it says this. The, The Gentiles, Paul's referring to the Gentiles here. He says, they show the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. You see, Paul understood this principle that we are given a conscience That we have consciousness. Even scientists today cannot determine or explain consciousness. They cannot explain energy. They can describe it. They can describe the effects of those two things, that we are conscious and that there is energy in the universe, but nobody can explain its existence. And so that is an evidence, again, of an intelligent designer. You know, it's interesting that Solomon would say, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. That is why we all reach up to God. That's why religion exists. Humans understand that there is something other than us. Acknowledging that is then a search and a seeking after God. That's why throughout all of Scripture, God says, seek me, search for me. And you will find me if you seek me with all of your heart. Jesus says, I have not come for the unhealthy. I have come for those who need a doctor. Because we recognize our own sin condition before him. That there is something that's gone horribly wrong. And so we see here, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. And so we see the threefold uh, purpose or roles of humanity. We are to represent God. He didn't create us in our own image for us to represent us. He created us in his image to represent him. Let me ask you a question. Are you representing God to your family? Are you representing Jesus to your friends, to your neighbors, to your co-workers, Are you being God's representative? In the New Testament, Paul would call us ambassadors in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We are ambassadors. That's what an ambassador does. They are a person sent from a country to represent the king of that country. And so we are God's representatives. Therefore, from one man came the entire race. Adam. But first, we must address this idea of two genders, because it does say there that we are created male and female. Now, I have to tell you, five years ago, I wouldn't have had to emphasize this. But we do today. We do. And it's because of what's happened. While God is a divine creator, and while God, on verse 31 of the first chapter, has said, everything is very good. From the fall, the genetic strand has become more and more and more and more corrupt. Generation after generation after generation after generation. This explains why people are born with disabilities, why we have diseases, why we have distortions, why we have a break in the design of Almighty God. It explains everything. This is where Christianity actually explains to the world that doesn't want to believe in God because they say, why would God allow so much pain and suffering in our world? Christianity says that the intelligent designer put it all in place and it was all perfect until man fell. And that sin nature now has infiltrated the entire human race, and with each succeeding generation, it gets more and more and more distorted. Christianity is the only plausible and logical explanation for why things have gone badly and how we can get it fixed. The answer, of course, is in Jesus Christ. You see, the DNA is a supercomputer. It's an intelligent design. The mind of God had created it, but sin infiltrated. And then you have mutational decay. Mutational decay describes and explains what went wrong. And so a lot of people think that we are evolving. I would submit to you this morning that the the Word of God teaches us, no, we are devolving. And I know that's hard for us to accept. We think we're smarter. We're creating computers ourselves. We're using our own intellect to create great things. And that's true. But I'm here to tell you that the whole world is groaning because of that decay. Romans 8 tells us this. If you look out in the world today, you'll see the the ravages of disease and sickness and discord. We see it all around us. We understand that we are in the likeness of God and we see the beautiful, beautiful creation of God, but something is missing. And so here at the end of verse 27, he says, male and female, he created them. Why? Number one, to bear his image. Number two, to procreate. Realize if he had only created one gender, there would be no procreation. There would be no reproduction. Second, Thirdly, we are to complement one another. If you look at humans, male and female, they are very different. This is God's design when he instituted marriage. He knew that they needed to complement one another. I do not have what Susan has and she doesn't have what I have, but together we are able to bring great glory to God. That's how it's designed. That's how God laid it out. So let's celebrate our difference. Let's celebrate the fact that we were created different from one another. We're physiologically different, we're psychologically different, and we have different personalities. Let's celebrate that. The culture wants to merge everything into one. No, no. Let's celebrate our differences. God created them male and female. But here's the greatest point. He created us male and female to reveal... The mystery of Christ and his church. If you read in Ephesians chapter 5, you'll find that Paul is talking about marriage between a husband and his wife. And he's talking about what needs to happen from each one of them. But then he says, but this is a mystery. I'm really talking about Christ and the church. When he's saying man should lay down his life for his wife, he's saying that Christ laid down his life for the bride, the church of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, the male and female context brings about and reflects other pairings in the creation. Through chapter 1, we saw that there was evening and there was morning. There was night and there was day. There was the sun and there was the moon. There was the land and there was the sea. There were the sea animals and the land animals. You see the pairings all through creation are reflected and administered here as male and female. God purposed it biologically. We are clearly biologically different. And finally, I love this. Well, maybe I don't because I like meat. But look at what it says there. Original diet was fruit and vegetables. Notice what he said there. I give you every seed-bearing plant in verse 29 on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. You know, I tell my vegetarian friends, I am so happy that Noah came because then after Noah, we were able to eat meat, you see, but that was not God's original design. So if you want to know who the original vegetarian was, it's God. He is also the original conservationist because he's going to talk to Adam and Eve about how to care for and how to have dominion over his creation. Isn't that beautiful? So if anybody ever talks to you about those things, you know, earth days coming up, whatever, just say, listen, I know the ultimate conservationist. His name is Almighty God, okay? And so therefore, we turn over to now the next question that we have, and that is this. Who is the head of the race of humankind? There is one race, one human race. I don't care what color your hair is, or eyes are, or skin are, or how many legs or arms you have, or what's usable, what's not usable. You are created in the image of Almighty God. You have infinite value, infinite value to Him. And look at what Paul said in Acts chapter 17. I find this amazing. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. From one man, he made the whole nations, all the nations, all people. You know, I was talking about the origin of the species last week, and here is the title page to Charles Darwin's Origin of the Species. And it says there that the title, most of us just think of it as the origin of the species. This is in our high schools and middle schools, friends. Look at what it says. The origin of species by means of natural selection. But then look at this next part of the title. Or... The preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. Now, I don't know about you, but he's got it all wrong. We are one race. We are humanity. And we need to join together and love one another as God loves us. I'm not kidding you. The world that we live in today wants to break up into every single group you can possibly think of. And our job is to love people as God loves them. And that is, they are bearing His image. And we must love them. We may not agree with them. We may not think that their lifestyle is right. But we must love them. Are you willing to love as Christ loved? Unconditionally. I would argue that that school, whatever school has that book, should remove that one from the shelf. Because it is absolutely the wrong message. It is anti-God for sure. I want to answer one more question before we move into this next section of passage of the passage. Um, somebody was asking, wait a minute, God said in verse 26, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea. And then down in verse 27, it says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. So was it the Trinity that did it, or was it God the Father who did it? I will say this. Both of the words here, then God said, and uh, so God created, is the word Elohim. Elohim, which is the powerful God. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But it's interesting because the answer to the question really is found in the fact that Moses, the author here, is quoting God in verse 26. And then Moses is stating as a narrative fact in verse 27, so God created. Does that make sense? And so God, Moses is quoting God when he says, let us make mankind in our image. And then Moses, the author, is saying, so then God created mankind in his own image. And so now we move on to the next question, and that is, and God so completed his work of creation, and then he rested. Let's continue on in verse 1 of chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all of their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and, And made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And so we see the Sabbath rest. And I think it's so important for us to understand this principle. When it says all the hosts or the vast array, as I just read it, we can think of this as the stars and even the angelic realm. In addition to that, we know that Jesus is the creator from John 1 and, of course, Colossians 1, what Jim read this morning. We also know that Jesus said he is the Lord of the Sabbath and that the Sabbath was created for us. In other words, we have a seven-day week because God determined that we would have a seven-day week. Now, what's interesting Nowhere outside of the Bible do we understand or learn about this concept of a seven-day work week. It is only in the context of Genesis 1 and 2 and then in Exodus that we have seven days. We can explain a year, the sun, right? The earth revolving around the sun. We can explain the months, the lunar months. But we cannot explain where the seven-day work week is. Came. Seven is, of course, a powerful God number. It's the perfect number. Seven colors in a rainbow. Seven notes in a scale of music. And we see the power of seven. We we, we just did uh, Revelation. Seven is all over Revelation. The number seven result, re, uh, means completeness and perfection. And so he says, on the seventh day, God rested. Now, I want to quote for you Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, and it's also repeated for us in Exodus chapter 31. You could go home and read that. But in Exodus chapter 20, it says this, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Get this. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. You see, this is repeated for us in Exodus chapter 31. So it's very clear. It's very clear that God created the heavens and the earth in six literal 24-hour days because he patterned the work week after it, as we just read in Exodus chapter 20. Notice also uh, the seventh day doesn't have any evening or morning attached to it. The implication is that we're living in the seventh day of God's creation. He is resting and his divine plan is unfolding. And we're part of that divine plan as his representatives on this earth until he comes again and culminates this age. And so we're living in the seventh day. We are to rest In him. And so there's no evening and morning. God blessed it and then he sanctified it. Now let's continue on and see that some scholars say that there are two authors to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. I want to show you the difference here. Uh, in Genesis 1, we have the creator God of all things. He is the cosmic creator. He is referred to as Elohim. He is a powerful God. He creates in six days the entire universe and then it climaxes with his pinnacle of creation, Adam. Adam, okay, in the Hebrew. And then it's the six days of creation. And what the author here, Moses, is doing is as he transitions into chapter 2, he is now going to focus on that pinnacle of creation, namely mankind and how we relate to God. And so there we see, in Genesis chapter 2, a covenant God. His name is Yahweh. It's, It's referencing his personal relationship with humanity, as opposed to Elohim, which is this powerful God. In addition, he is the God of man, and it climaxes with the institution of marriage, how mankind is to relate to one another in representation of the Trinity. There is unity and diversity in the community of the Trinity. And so we see that in the marriage relationship with children as well. Sixth day of creation, therefore. And so that is why we distinguish between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. But then we have a question. And here's a question I'm going to anticipate. It's verses 4 through 7. Let me read these for us and then we'll finish up. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Then the Lord God made, the, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up. Does that, find you, does that cause confusion in your mind? Wait a minute, I thought God created in verse 11 and verse 12 the vegetation on day three. And here it says no shrub, no plant had sprung up. Let's keep reading. For the Lord God had sent, not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Let me pause right there and say this. I don't know if this causes some concern in your mind or you see it as a potential contradiction between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, but let's be clear. Genesis 1, remember I said God created all of the vegetation in its maturity. These are grown plants, grown trees. But the process of cultivating, of germinating, seeding and germinating had not yet begun. And so this is what the reference is. He is expressing to us, and here's the key, he is expressing in this passage that no shrub will be able to propagate itself into the future because there's two things that are required for that process to work. One is water and the other is mankind humankind to cultivate, to till the ground, to tend it. And so it makes total sense for us that we see that God is saying, there is a purpose for which I created mankind and I'm giving you one of those purposes. He is to tend the earth, to steward the earth that I have given him. And so we see that the breath of life is Something that God gives us. Look at what it says in verse 7. Then the Lord had formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. How many of you have a King James version where it would say man became a living soul? Okay, you've got it. Okay, so many of us would see that we don't necessarily have a soul. We are a soul. Okay, And it's interesting to note that. Now, I don't want to get too dogmatic here with regard to dichotomy and trichotomy, but we do understand that God is Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so if you look at this passage where the breath of life comes into humankind from God, evolution does not explain where life comes from. It doesn't have a logical explanation for where that spark of life comes And here we have it very clearly. God breathed into Adam and he became a living being or a living soul. And so I'm a trichotomist. just full disclosure. I believe that we have a body and a soul and a spirit and that the body and soul are what every human being has. We all have it. The spirit was given to Adam and Eve, and then they fell and they lost the spirit. They became separate from God. God said, in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. They died spiritually. They lost the spirit, their sense of connection to God. And so all humans have a body, that is the the physical, the cardiovascular, the muscular structure, the tent that you live in, okay? But then all of us also have a soul. This is the personhood that we have, our intellect, our uh, emotions, our will, our volition, everything about us. But then those of us who then take on, trust in Jesus Christ, what does He do? The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. And so that is the part of us that lives on forever. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. Well, then we come to the final recap here. Every human being is created in God's image. God created humans to represent Him, to reproduce and to rule the creation. There are two genders, male and female. All humankind is descended from one man, Adam. The Sabbath rest is a pattern for our work week. And Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, reveal to us a powerful God and a personal God. This is so important for us as a Christians. We have to understand that. And then fi- finally, it is the breath of God that began life. Amen and hallelujah. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And we will, um, we will then respond in song. Father, we love you. We know that your word tells us exactly how you created why you created, and that we, Father, are the highest order of your creation. We have that privilege, but we also have that responsibility to represent you, to be fruitful and increase in number, and to be good stewards of your creation. Lord, I pray that today all of us can meditate on these passages and that we can be used by you to represent you to a world that so desperately needs hope. Oh, Father, use us, we pray. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen.